Welcome to the River Mountain Church Preaching Library. It is our prayer and indeed our hope that this message might inspire your life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. Well, we continue now in the book of Jude. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2. We looked at a humble defense of the faith given by Jesus' half-brother, This is a very short book, and so hopefully we'll be um, moving through it fairly quickly. But we're going to take some time here on these early verses. This morning we're going to look at what is grace. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5. I want to start out by reading. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. We touched on the idea of contending for the faith, sometimes referred to as apologetics, that is to say, to give a defense for the faith. And here Jude is concerned about them, so much so that he cannot go with his original topic, was talk about the Christian faith and what they shared in common. He now has to get to the defense of the faith. The key thing to look at here is the usage of the word, the faith. Much like our uh, relationship to our Heavenly Father, there is only one God, there is only one truth, there is only one mediator between God and man, that is the person Christ, there is also only one faith. So what do we mean by contending for the faith singular? As it says here, that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, we did not come up with it ourselves, but it was given to us. Now, who gave us the Christian faith? Well, we could say it was Jesus. We could say it was God. But I think what the Apostle Jude is appealing to here is the understanding that was given from the beginning that it was given to us by the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the eyewitnesses of the life of Christ, the eyewitnesses of the plan of salvation. The Bible simply tells us that when the church came together as a unit, 3,000 were saved upon that first preaching by Peter. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. The apostles' teaching is singular. It was what the apostles brought us. Notice in Ephesians 2.20, it says that our faith was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. As heresies begin to spring up all over the church, the church found it necessary to make a summary of all of the key belief systems in the apostles' teaching. It became known to us as the Apostles' Creed. And when you look at the Apostles' Creed, it is all rooted in Scripture, and it's all about the foundational truths of the Christian faith. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he arose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. Key points. Anyone who departs from this basic belief system is no longer following the Apostles' teaching. If you go to our website, rivermountainchurch.org, you will see our beliefs, and you'll also see that we are in agreement with two creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Why is that important? Because this anchors us to orthodoxy. We are a non-denominational church, but that does not mean that we are free to come up with our own belief system. We're a Bible-believing church, and in the essence of that, we agree with the apostles, that foundation that was already laid. How strict should we be about this? 
Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, talking to a church that was sometimes just completely off the wall, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul as an apostle says, what I am writing are not my own opinions, but as an apostle, these are commands of the Lord. And then he says to the leaders of that church, if you're a prophet, and by the way, leaders were considered prophets, or if you're spiritual, you should acknowledge these things as a command. Now, what if the church says, ah, it's only the apostle Paul. Eh, I don't know if we need to believe this or not. The apostle Paul would go on to say, if you do not recognize this, and recognize my authority, then if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's pretty strong. If you want to be a part of the faith, the church, we must agree with the apostles' teachings. Now, I know there's differences in certain doctrinal uh, things that we can't quite agree with, but in the essentials, those apostles' teachings, we must be in agreement Now, what's curious about this, if we take the context of what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, here is the subject matter that he's getting to. He says, So my brothers earnestly desire prophecy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. Think about what he just said there. If you don't recognize that the church must seek prophecy, if you don't recognize that the church has absolutely no authority to forbid speaking in tongues, then you're not recognized. So I say to churches that discount the things of the Spirit, that write into their bylaws, we do not believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Without being harsh or without being cruel, I would say to them, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul here says, if you do not follow what he said right here, you're not recognized. It's not up to me to decide who's recognized or not, but the Scriptures tell us if they will not recognize this, they're not recognized. Something to think about as we go through and and really want to emphasize the faith. The faith is what was handed down to us. Later on, Jude will say, listen, you need to build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. It's different from praying in our understanding. And by the way, this does refer to the prayer language, which is praying in the Spirit and building ourselves up in that faith. But the thing I want to emphasize here is faith must be holy. He says here in um, the fourth verse, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people. God is not surprised that there are these people that creep into the church that have actually been predestined for judgment. Think about that. They follow the, the line of Judas. Jesus selected Judas to be an apostle, but he really selected him to betray him. He selected him to be a son of perdition. And so we could say there are still sons of perdition. They creep into the church, but they have been predestined for destruction. Why this group was predestined for destruction was what Jude calls a perversion of the grace of God. Listen what he says here. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Say, what is the grace of God? Well, the grace of God, as you see here, the Greek word charis, which simply means His favor, His kindness granted to us. Uh, It's unmerited favor. It means He saves us, not based upon our worth, 
uh, or, or our righteousness, but simply based upon his kindness. It's his unmerited favor to us. That is the grace of God. What did they turn it into? Into sensuality. The word here means to have unbridled lust and excess, lasciviousness. These Gnostic teachers turn grace into a license to sin or to give permission to people that it was okay to sin. Sometimes it's referred to as cheap grace. Now, let me make a clarification here because he's going to be very strong about this teaching and how these people are basically going to be condemned to hell who teach this particular doctrine. The Bible makes it clear that we're all sinners. The Bible makes it clear that we have been saved by grace. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we're all going to struggle with sins. And even the best of us on our best day, we have all fallen short of the glory of the Lord. I don't care who you are. You have no personal righteousness. The Bible even goes as far to say that if you say you do not sin or you do not have sin, you are lying because our nature is so fallen that every day we participate in sinful behaviors. Every day we fall short of perfection. Okay, So this, these verses are not talking about people who struggle with sin. It's talking about a group of men who have taken this doctrine of grace and have turned it into something which it, it becomes manipulative as if to say to people, hey, God doesn't care how you live. It doesn't matter. Now, I'm going to give you two extreme examples. One was from a very famous evangelical minister who um, committed adultery. And um, the way he did it was so manipulative because he told the person who he wanted to participate in a relationship with that she was actually doing service to God because he was God's anointed. And what an honor it would be for her to bring about his own personal satisfaction. She should feel honored doing this work of God for God's... Now that, if there's ever been a case in which the grace of God is being manipulated, it would be in something like that. Another case comes to us from the Roman church, the ancient Roman church. I saw this in a documentary done by Frontline, the PBS uh, station a while back, and it was called The Secrets of the Vatican. It was dealing with a doctrinal understanding about the vestments. What the Catholic Church teaches as these vestments that the priest puts on when he does the Mass uh, is a form of righteousness, Christ righteousness. They are unworthy to perform a Mass, but these vestments carry with it a sense of sanctification or holiness. Now, these particular priests took it to a really dark place. Uh, this particular group of priests would gather together on a Saturday night and participate in all kinds of behavior that we would call ungodly. Some of them would be mentioned here in this Galatian chapter. But the, the worst part about it was that they would gather together on a Sunday morning after the Saturday night, put on their vestments as if nothing had happened, and they would perform Mass for one another. There would be no conviction, no repentance, uh, for after all, what they did in the flesh on Saturday night uh, was totally different when they put on Christ and the vestments and represented a priest on a Sunday morning. It's that kind of understanding that I think Jude is alluding to. Of course, if they read the rest of Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How are they denying him? They are denying him by their behavior. 
Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I told you? You can't just simply say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is my Lord and totally ignore the scriptures, what Jesus commanded us to do, what the apostles brought down to us. The final point has to do with saved but not completely. And for this, we'll look at Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, again, all scripture is nothing more than a reminder. Most of the stuff you hear from the pulpit, you've already heard before. But here's what he says, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, first of all, you might ask, wait a second, I don't remember Jesus in the story of the Exodus. How was Jesus present? How was it Jesus who was the one leading them out of the Exodus? Well, there's two ways of understanding this. One is that every time there was a theophany or an angel of the Lord, it very well could have been Jesus. For instance, the burning bush, which instructed Moses uh, to lead the people out of their bondage. The other way of understanding this is every time that God speaks from heaven, he speaks Jesus. The Bible tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, Jesus represents the Word of God. He is the second person of the Trinity manifested in every word that was spoken. For instance, in the book of Genesis, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. How can we say this conclusively, that Jesus, the Word, was involved in creation? Here we have it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Why is this important to mention Jesus involved in the leading them out and then the destruction? Well, because remember I said about the Gnostics that they believed the Old Testament did not need to be obeyed. They also came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament was different from the God of the New Testament as reflected in Jesus. And here Jude says, no, 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 no. It was Jesus who was involved in the destruction of those people who did not believe. So he's clearing this up that there's only one God. Jesus is the manifestation of that God. There is not two different gods, one of the Old Testament and one of the New. One's wrathful and one's forgiving. No. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no distinction between the Old and the New or the God of the Old and the God of the New. As a matter of fact, he says it's Jesus being manifested in both cases. He is the one who destroys those who do not believe. But here's the connection to these people who are living at that time in this particular church. He says in verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also. What is he saying? These people do not believe the gospel that has been handed down by the apostles. They deny that authority. Therefore, they too will be destroyed. Again, what's interesting about the terminology, he saved them and then he destroyed them. And the question comes up here, is it possible for a person to be saved and to fall away? And if I'm going to be very biblical about this, what I would say would be this. Yes, it is possible for a person to experience something that would appear like salvation. This is Hebrews chapter 6, Verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, 
and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they have crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Very scary verse of Scripture, indicating that it's possible to taste of the gifts of God, to experience the Holy Spirit, to, to, to be in the church, and then to fall away. We are also told in Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you are saved, but that does not mean you have finished your salvation. Well, listen to the Apostle Paul when he talks about the very end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is the faith, singular. I've kept orthodoxy. I've kept the doctrines that were passed down by the apostles. And I took my salvation from the beginning to the end. I crossed the finish line. But I want to close with two verses that should also give us the balance of the encouragement that our salvation is also being motivated by something greater than ourself. In other words, the grace of God is going to carry us to the finish line if we don't work against it. It says in John 15, 6, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that fruit should abide. One more verse of scripture. The Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Grace is at work within us if we don't turn it into something other than what it's meant to be. It's God's favor, but it's also his empowerment. And so we work out the grace of God. We work out the power of the Holy Spirit and we go all the way to the end. Thanks for listening to this message from River Mountain Church. If you'd like some more information, visit our website, rivermountainchurch.org. 